0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Good. Hey, Andrew. I missed you. Hi, everybody. Yes, it's great to be back. A good holiday week. Um, I spent the last few days in Las Vegas for NBA Summer League, and I can't overstate how nice it is to be in a quiet house after spending 72 hours at a casino.
1: So, up or down?
0: Uh, well, I don't gamble. So I was, I was out there basically just consuming horrible summer league basketball the entire time. Um, so I consider myself down after watching terrible okay. hoops for three or four days. Also, speaking of being down. Victor Wembanyama, our French our French sensation that we were discussing at the end of the last episode, he really struggled in his debut. Really? Yes. It's it's unfortunate. I guess he was
1: tired from the whole slap Britney Spears incident. It, it must have been it, exhausting.
0: It's possible. Either me on this podcast or Britney Spears may have uh, cursed Victor Wembanyama, so hopefully he's able to recover.
1: Wow. That'd be remarkable if he's overrated.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, he he's rated so highly that it's almost impossible for him to not be overrated. People are predicting him to be like a top 10 player of all time. But,
1: but has he played at this level before?
0: No, he hasn't played at this level. So he, he, he will adjust. Um, but the expectations were completely out of control. So some sort of letdown was probably inevitable. Um, But in any event, we missed a lot of news during the holiday week. We've got a lot to get to today. Janet Yellen made her way to China late last week. The meetings seem to have been pretty cordial. Um, I'm curious for your thoughts. Uh, I'll start with this note from The New York Times. They write, Miss Yellen sought repeatedly during her trip to allay China's concerns that the United States sought to decouple at all, and she even avoided mentioning de-risking. She said that instead, the United States wanted diverse supply chains, which happens to be a longtime public policy goal of China as well. Quote, there is an important distinction between decoupling on the one hand, and on the other hand, diversifying critical supply chains, or taking targeted national security actions. So Bill, I'll let you take it whatever direction you want to go. What did you think of the Yellen meetings and um, this effort to shift the language one more time around decoupling? We've gone from decoupling to de-risking and now diversifying. The triple D. Yeah. Um, What's next? No. <laughs> you can take bets here. <laughs> Sound off in the comments.
1: I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the the Chinese side was very happy to welcome Secretary of Treasury Yellen. I, you know, they – Like we talked about before, um, they really didn't want to see Secretary of State Blinken. They don't like him. Um, They'd much prefer to talk to Yellen, Kerry, and Raimondo. um, But the U.S. side insisted that Blinken go first. Um, And so now they're in the happier – the Chinese side, I think, are in the happier phase of their interlocutors. And so the Yellen uh, meetings, again, the – Official readouts and some of the the sort of background about them sounds like they were as positive as expected. Nothing uh, particularly momentous in terms of any real structural breakthroughs, but certainly um, progress towards changing the tone, which Mm -hmm. I think has been one of the goals of the Biden administration in what you know appears to have been sort of this ongoing shift in how they talk about China over the last last few months. I mean, you remember we talked about it a few episodes ago, sort of the the dog who caught the car problem, right? Where all of a sudden they realized the Biden side, like so tough on China. And then all of a sudden like, well, what do we do now? Right. And then got, seemed to have gotten sort of spooked or got pressure from allies and other constituencies in the U S and so have been trying to shift the tone. Um, so the Yellow visit again, I think was, was, is, is part of that. Um, Substance wise, we still don't actually know what's going to come out of that. You know, there have been reports and, rumors and chatter about a couple of actions coming out of the U.S., coming from the U.S. government in the near term. One is sort of um, plugging some gaps in some of the semiconductor export controls, which um, at least as of last week, I was hearing might hit by this Friday. We'll see. We'll see Mm. if those are delayed again or if they're somehow modified to be a little bit softer in the wake of Yellen's visit. And then the second are the sort of the long discussed outbound investment controls, which um, you we're they've been in the reports about them sort of coming soon in the media since last year. Um, once again, it's supposed to be this July. We'll see. We'll also see again, if the secretary has come back from her China visit and is, is sort of, you know, the treasury, at least my understanding on, on those two issues tends to be on the more sort of cautious, um, more dovish approaches. And so we'll see if that takes on even more weight. And if these two measures are either not pushed out or are pushed out with even less, um, less of a bite than maybe they originally had in the, in the original drafting.
0: Yeah. It, it seems like that's what we'll be watching for, particularly with the outbound investments um, and, and any sort of regulations that emerge here is how expansive are they going to be? Because initially it was going to be like a, a real meaningful step. And now at least when we talked about it a month or two back, it, it, there's talk that it's being watered down considerably in the wake of this push for a thaw and and stabilization of the relationship?
1: Um, yeah. And so, and so I think we just have to wait and see, I mean, from the sort of this meeting, she was there for four days, you know, the sounds like the, I mean, the meetings went well. I mean, it's important that the U S um, meets and communicates with the newish leadership team on the economic leadership team, um it, you know these these meetings are important. Um mm-hmm. we've talked about it before. It's not a bad thing to be talking. It's a problem if you give away a bunch of stuff to have the meetings. Not clear we the US did, but um well yeah, she she gener- didn't
0: meet with she, but she did meet with Lee Chang and the other people she met with hadn't been in office very long and nobody on the US side had met with them. So in that case there really is value in meeting face to face and that could be sort of a, a goal in itself to just get to know these people and, and establish a relationship.
1: Yeah. So, so I think that in general is not a, is, is, is a positive thing. Um, you know, we have the, the climates are former secretary of state, former Senator Kerry is, I think, traveling to Beijing this coming weekend to talk about climate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the Chinese, I think of all the U S official interlocutors right now, he's their favorite Um and so we we'll, again we'll see you know he's got a supposedly a narrow remit in terms of what he works on but he also has i think direct access to the president so we'll see after his trip whether or not he comes back with again sort of um a- another set of messages that leads to some
0: further moderation from the US side
1: on the policy
0: yeah um yeah wh- so well and the the Effort to shift the language with decoupling, I found all of that interesting as a microcosm of what the Biden administration is trying to do more generally, which is essentially soften the tone, meet the PRC halfway, at least in terms of rhetoric. And then even as you soften the tone, I mean, the Wall Street Journal had a a story about how decoupling is happening, regardless of what Yellen wants to call it. And it's just another reminder that like, no matter what they do on the U S side, it's hard to square the structural tensions that are going to be there regardless, because like China is also trying to diversify supply chains and it's rational for both countries to insulate themselves from too much dependence on a geopolitical rival. And so it's, it's just interesting. Like I don't think rebranding the U S efforts every six months or so is actually going to do much to allay the concerns long-term. No, it, it,
1: I agree. It's also not clear if that usage by the Secretary of, of Treasury was, you know, it's it's the National Security Advisor recently talked about de-risking. Um, it, it's not clear if that's really sort of a meaningful shift or that just was like a sort of um, looking for another word. Yeah, I, just again, turn a phrase. Are, we're still, It's it's still not, Exactly clear, but I think if there were a debate between, say, the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of Treasury over de-risking versus diversify, at this point, it still would think the, the the more the term is more de-risking. From the Chinese perspective, it's all D, right? right? In the sense that, like, they're not buying the. De-risking is not decoupling. They're not buying these. You know, the U.S. on on technology controls is high is small fence, high yard, and isn't doesn't want to hurt the Chinese economy. The U.S. officials can re- reiterate these points. I and mean, Yellen said basically, like we're not trying to harm the Chinese economy. That is not how it's being perceived in China,
0: right? And it it will harm the Chinese economy if we're diversifying. And
1: and so in some ways, I just I kind of wish the U.S. officials would just stop saying this because they really sound like they're either clueless or just being disingenuous.
0: Yes. And the PRC side is far too smart to buy into any of it. And it's not going to be particularly persuasive. So, um, yeah, well, it it, I'm glad that she went and I'm glad that the meeting seemed to have gone fairly well. Um, I was with you where I, I just. There wasn't a ton of substance in the readout. So I'm curious what was discussed behind the scenes. Um, but right. There's- and, and so
1: far, I've not gotten a good readout. I, I will say I wouldn't be surprised if we see a um, Republican attack ad featuring. She unfortunately bowed three times to um, Vice Premier Holi Fung, um, which in that video has already been making the rounds on um, it, what happened there.
0: Is, is that too many bows?
1: Well, there there should be zero. Okay. Um, apparently that's sort of a tick she has when she meets people anyway, but this one was like a little bit more effusive than it should have been. But of course people then read way too much into it and different, you know, depending on your political views, you sort of see this as like this like Symbolic. horrible crime, horrible crime against American patriotism or like just kind of dumb um, and poorly staffed and got bad advice or, or sort of bad staff work to advance work to sort of help her understand what Maybe looks good, what doesn't? Mm-hmm. Ironically, of course, bowing three times in China is like you bow three times to pay the respects to somebody who's dead. Oh, wow, so, you know. I so mean, it was a faux pas on the
0: PRC side too, or
1: or maybe or maybe this was like some super sophisticated three D chess where Yellen was actually <laughs> paying the last respects to Xi Jinping economic thought. She right? was her, she was so her well way of prepared. being critical. Yeah, right. It's this possible. is her way of of being deviously critical about like, you guys are working off of, you know, you're using a an a, a economic thought that is not helping you. So therefore I'll pay my last respects. I doubt that, but I'm just trying to like, like if I were in the press office there, you'd, you'd probably want to have some other ideas about how to spin this if people try and make a big deal out of it. Again, I taught in the newsletter. I, say, I mean, whatever, it's out there. It's not a great look. It's not a big deal. People just got to move on. But it's one of those things that's driving certain parts of the media Ecosystem here in the US, like you know, bananas.
0: Well, I don't know how many subscribers we have at Treasury, but hopefully, somebody is listening out there. That's a free idea from Bill a galaxy brain way to spin the triple bow from uh Secretary, yeah. But then
1: you're offending, but then you're offending the Chinese side, and that's not something Treasury wants to do. That's true, it's not going to happen. I think it was just it was just not a lot.
0: Believe me, I know it's not going to happen, but it would be pretty funny. Uh, there was also, while we're on the social media controversy front, there was also this story from Reuters. They write, a group of Chinese female economists who met with U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen over the weekend have been lambasted on Chinese social media by some netizens who accused them of treason for meeting her and being, quote, radical feminists. Some users called Yellen an obviously dangerous person, asking why she was allowed to be officiated as a public guest in the country, while others called out the female economists as being pro-Americans. Quote, look at the bunch. The anti-espionage law might come in handy, wrote a user called Sean3847, while another user wrote everyone around the table should be caught. no one is innocent. The United States is always so kind to help us expose the rebels um that's obviously terrible on the other side of the spectrum the restaurant where she and those uh, economists ate is apparently experiencing a boom in demand in the wake of that meal and the restaurant has introduced a special menu of the dishes her table ordered yeah it's a decent it's it. a
1: it's a decent restaurant they're they're yeah, it's it's a decent restaurant.
0: Well, they now have the God of Money menu, which lists everything that was eaten at that meal. Um, I don't know whether you have reactions to either news well, item. But- well, so
1: so on the sort of the the nasty comments, I mean I, I love the like whatever the username you had. I mean, I'm just gonna start quoting like Tashi B996 for like comments. <laughs> I mean, there there's like just random garbage comments on the internet in China and the US and everywhere. Um, the one that I think was the most disturbing was by this um, uh, a professor at Fudan University, one of ta- you know, supposedly one of China's top universities down in Shanghai, this Professor Xiaoyi, who's just a jingoistic jerk, um, mm. to, be, uh, to use the proper political science term. And, and he's the one who really sort of – I think he talked about basically like what, what are their KPIs. He's, he's just a really nasty, um, nasty guy. And that is more interesting and more disturbing that someone in that kind of position. and feels like they can sort of push out this garbage to their – I think he has over 2 million Weibo followers um, rather than you know, sort of rando, rando complaints. It's just, it's internet just, it's just yeah. unfortunate, right? Because frankly, on the Chinese side, I mean, first of all, this group of economists, you know, they, they wouldn't have gone if they thought there was like, – if there wasn't some sort of approval especially right. in this current environment.
0: I mean, that's what I figured, sure.
1: Yeah, and so and so, it's just like, you know, th- th- we have, just have to remember that there are um, plenty of forces on both sides who are not interested in seeing the relationship improve. Right. And, and yeah. That, and that is a problem. And the other thing, though, of course, with... um, Oh, yeah, yeah. So Shaghi, it's over 2 million followers on Weibo. I just want to make sure. I mean, he basically said... There, his quote was, "There's no such thing as a free meal. They'll need to deliver k p i s in exchange, basically talking about like obviously they have to do something for the u s to be able to get this meeting and you know again, so it
0: does sound like an echo of what we've heard in the u s yeah. the last three or four months and, and
1: you know and the challenge- the one of the one of the problems too right is is there you know the Chinese internet is pretty heavily censored um it's it's always interesting, you know, what you can't say, but it's also interesting what you can be allowed to say, right? And so this was just, I think, a very is very unfortunate and what should generally have been a positive meeting, but it also, you know, again, one of the one of the, I think, the the problems or one of the reasons that some people, including like this Professor Shun, were angry, um, was it was it was women and it were some of them were feminist economists. And right now, I mean, there there's still a lot of uh, especially from some of the more narrow-minded jingoistic types like this professor shun, who, who I think is, I mean, really is, is kind of a laughingstock in the Chinese academic circles. Um, but mm-hmm. yet has a big, has a big platform. Um, and so has an impact, even though you like, he, I mean, Fudan is looks stupid to still have him on it, on their staff, but it is what it is. The, um, but it just it's just sort of broader, like also this, I think, a bit of a pushback, you know, the fact if you're feminist, then therefore you're like Western influence. And then therefore you're, you know, two steps away from like a color revolution. So yeah. it's, just, it's just a toxic mix.
0: It seemed like a nasty combination of anti-American sentiment and also just sort of misogyny. Um, So, yes. yeah, it
1: was- No, no, there's a lot of misogyny. And I mean, I have discussion. I mean, he does a lot of he's he's basically like a, he's a very opportunistic guy. He. He does a lot of videos. You know, he's he's just a, he's just like a really um, a really toxic actor on sort of the foreign policy sort of yeah opinion. Well, well, stage. that's
0: interesting because I read the Reuters article and thought to myself, you know one of the things that's frustrating trying to understand China from the outside is that the information environment is so tightly regulated that almost everything I hear is coming from either the party itself or state-sponsored media. And so it's harder to gauge the sentiments of actual Chinese citizens. And so you see a story like that Reuters story. And my first reaction was, if someone wrote about every stupid social media controversy in the US, you yeah, would make I, I, the I, Americans look really, really. That's stupid. why I
1: that's why I I really tend to ignore random, like like internet, Chinese internet or US internet comments from random people. This one is yeah. more more meaningful just because of the position of the person making it. But yeah, it's like you can find, you know, like like jolo 865 on twitter who has an opinion on the Yellen vision and do we care
0: exactly yes and so but it is interesting to to learn that people with much bigger platforms are also yeah. um circulating that sort of toxic and, message And it's,
1: it's also interesting you know be frankly again it goes back to like one these people are who attended the meeting are not stupid and they would have Made sure it was okay to attend it. Two, if the Chinese government is serious about wanting to increase engagement and understanding, then a discussion like this is something that they should encourage. So it, it just is. So this person, this Fudan professor, is—is is he going against official like Beijing policy? Is it just sort of this opportunistic money making thing because he can go be the nationalist blowhard? Um, you know, I mean, the, these elements exist everywhere. They exist in the U.S. too. And so, um, but it is, again, in the Chinese system, it's it's a little more interesting just because it th- there are, I mean, there are, for example, related not about this particular meeting, but um, this guy, Shani, often contributes to um, this very nationalist website called Guancha, which was funded by a venture capitalist named Eric X. Lee, who went to Stanford Business School. Um, at one point was a, U.S. citizen who was donating to U.S. presidential campaigns now appears to have gotten rid of his U.S. citizenship as a PRC citizen. But on Guancha, right, they're, all, they're a very jingoist website. They fund a lot of stuff. They recently, um, one, of their, one of their folks, um, I think it was previous former editor who also has a connection to Fudan University where Sheyi works, he, he posted this really nasty article looking at all of the journalists working for international media, who are the journalists who are of Chinese uh, ethnicity. Um, and sort of talking about how they were a big problem. In sort were of, they betraying the. Yes, system? basically. No, basically. Okay. Like they were basically traders. They're betraying sort of, you know, they're. They, and, and it was, and I mean, ironically, at least one of the reporters they mentioned was actually not at all, has, has Korean ethnicity, nothing to do with China, but whatever. They sort of, the point was, <laughs> they're there, and, and the, 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 there is a Fudan nexus here because Eric X. Lee is connected to Fudan. There's this China incident Fudan, which is. Um, the head of it is this guy, John Weiwei, who's like Shanyi, but sort of more sophisticated. Um, and so there's a there's a real there's real money to be made from being just nationalist jingoistic assholes, just like yep. there is here. I was going right? to say, yes, it, it, that's it's, not it's, a, it's a business in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And some of these people are making a lot of money.
0: Well, I will say that I interpreted the photo the same way that you did, which is to say, I can't imagine any of those women were there without explicit state approval. Um, right. And that's probably true for everyone that Yellen met throughout her visit. So um, much ado about nothing as far as I'm concerned. I, I One other question on optics. A, a number of people have pointed out that we are sending a series of high-level cabinet members to Beijing, but there have been fewer reciprocal trips uh, is that a meaningful departure from past practices? Is it closer to a coincidence? Like, how much should we read into that? So,
1: I mean, I think so. The, the Commerce Minister, Woman Ha, um, was in the U.S., I think it was either late May or early June, uh, met with the U.S. Commerce Secretary, met with the um, head of the U.S. The US Trade Representative. Um, you know, Secretary Blinken invited, and I think the Chinese side accepted, but the date hadn't been set. The now disappeared Foreign Minister, Qing Gong. Um, to come to the U.S. at some point. Um, mm-hmm. And we can we can talk about that and to, to sort of where what's going on with him in a bit. Um, I think that uh, in this case, the Chinese economic leadership team is new and it's multiple people. It's probably not logistically realistic to think that they're all going to come to the U.S. And if there are four or five or six key players you want to meet, it actually is useful for the U.S. to go there and be able to have these meetings. Um, right. So, you know, at this point, I wouldn't, Overread what's going on. It's certainly, um, you know, Blinken, Yellen, uh, of course the the CIA director went Yellen, then Kerry this weekend, Romano. then Romando, I hear is early September. You know, nothing has been confirmed yet. Um, if we get to those five in a row, and and I guess one one time was uh, made, but if we get to the next four in a row, and then nobody from the Chinese side comes, then you know, it looks it does look a little bit like we're trying really hard. And that fits into the Chinese narrative of, well, you've, you, you cause all the problems, you have to fix it. Um, But I don't think we're there yet to be able to say that sort of with any like, oh, yeah, this looks terrible.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And and I do
1: understand why, for example, like Yellen goes, has their multiple actors, economic policymakers, economic act- actors, in the economic policymaking system, it, it, I think logistically it does make that a lot, lot of meeting. sense. For and plus, you know, I mean, they're also just naturally, no U officials have been, you know, for three plus years because of the pandemic. And so it, it, it isn't right on its that's face. What, that's what I said earlier. Yeah. There on are people its face, they it literally have met. met. Yeah. So on its face, it shouldn't be a problem. It's just given the dynamics of the relationship, if it gets too out of balance, then I think it does start at least causing an optics issue. And I will say, just because it just popped up in my inbox when we started the podcast, the balloon is not gone. Oh, um, my gosh. G- Montana, the, the, the GOP senator, from, one of them from Montana, Danes, has just sent a letter to the uh, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Commerce, and Secretary of treasury demanding more information about the use of U.S. technology in the tiny spy balloon.
0: Terrific. <laughs> Maybe well, it will go
1: nowhere, but the, I'm telling you, the balloon thing is still—it it is still going to keep floating around.
0: You know, I wish we had an intern who could go back and listen to every episode of Sharp China just to keep a running tally of how many times we've said, we're done talking about the balloon. The balloon hey, is dead and buried. Can we
1: upload it? Can we upload the files to ChatGPT and
0: have it tell us? Maybe, maybe, you know, I, that's a good use I, case. I got to
1: figure out how to, maybe Ben knows. How do you, how like, how do you get audio up into there? I, I, I'm i not sure.
0: I'm sure we're a mere two or three months away if it doesn't already have that uh, capability because all of this, every quarter, there's like a, a leap forward. I'm not prepared for any of it. Um, speaking of tech, so a few days before Janet Yellen went to Beijing, China announced it would be restricting exports of gallium and germanium, which are two esoteric metals used to make microchips. It's old news by now, but we didn't get a chance to talk about it over the break. What did you think about that announcement?
1: Um, so it's what they say is they're not going to require licenses to export. So, so it isn't, it's a, it's a, Adding a bureaucratic step, it's not clear that they're going to restrict them, but it sort of, it's basically sort of waving the hey, we can restrict them if we want to, and we believe that these are two elements and they're sort of related chemical compounds. These are things over which we have leverage. Um, I think that it it's one of those things where it is probably going to backfire on the Chinese because it just reminds and sort of forces even folks who want to pretend that there aren't these critical vulnerabilities in certain areas in the with supply chains in China, that mm-hmm. this, again, is something else where the US, US allies, the EU has to not decouple, not de-risk, but diversify, <laughs> right. right? Exactly. Um,
0: Pick your D word.
1: So best I can tell is that this is not again. It's not an area where the Chinese actually have a like a forever monopoly. It's just that they are willing to process it in a way that's much cheaper and much dirtier. They can accept. They can accept the environmental costs. The, mm-hmm. the cost is much lower, and so other countries haven't wanted to deal with it because they can buy it from China because it's just cheaper. And then, in fact, this will just probably raise the price and will lead to probably a. Bump in production in other other areas, and then things will normalize again. I think that's the sort of the best case scenario. TSMC has come out and said they're not concerned. Maybe they have big stockpiles. I don't know, um, but I think ultimately it's one of those things where you know the Chinese you know they have to do something to respond. But I think making this kind of implicit threat is probably going to actually harden views outside of China on the needs to find alternative sources for critical minerals and critical resources.
0: Yep. That makes sense. And, and and the and the thing is they've done this before with rare earths,
1: which of course are not actually rare. It's just again, it goes to the, the processing. It's the process. It's really yeah. dirty and the Chinese are willing to do it. Um, you know, back I think it was two thousand nineteen, um, at the height of the trade war, right when um the US and uh the, the US she thought he and Trump had a deal um sort of on for, for like a truce in the trade war. And then it fell apart over, um, yeah, it was in May of 2019. It fell apart, I think, over Memorial Day weekend in May of 2019. And then she soon after, very soon after, he went on one of the inspection tours and included to the province in Jiangxi where they make, they actually uh, mine and, and, extract refine, and extract, and, process, and, and yeah. process a lot of the rare earths. Basically, like it sort of was a implicit threat that, well, this is our trump card. We can control rare earths. Um, And
0: it is it is a trump card. I mean, it it sounds like gallium and germanium are less rare and it's just going to lead to microchip processing being a little bit more expensive over the next couple of years. If 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 China does decide to restrict them aggressively and it's been perceived as potential retaliation for the export controls surrounding chips on the U.S. side. Uh, But there are other metals and minerals that the PRC could restrict. And I just wonder, like, what are the disincentives there? Because I knew in, in 2010, there was a big controversy when they stopped exporting rare earths to Japan. And for people who don't know, rare earths are important to electric batteries and a lot of green energy and high-end electronics, uh, among other things, also military equipment that relies on a lot of rare earths. So what sort of blowback would China experience if they did try to restrict those more aggressively?
1: Um, well, I think, again, it, it would really be a question of how um, how effective those restrictions would actually be, whether or not there are stockpiles. I mean, this is these are areas where countries have been concerned for for quite some time Um, for all their talk about sort of world trade organization and playing by the rules. It's it's not clear that this is like, doesn't violate global trade rules. Not that it really matters if they want to do it for what they would say is national security reasons. They don't really care. Like most countries Mm -hmm. wouldn't care. Um, But I think that uh, again, you raise, I think the more important point, which is what if, and just like with this, this, this new export license requirements for um, for and gallium, it's just like okay, yeah. What if? So everyone who has a vulnerability here better be ready for what if. And so, right. you, and so, and that's been happening across the board. It hasn't been happening fast enough. And I, this is where I think this latest announcement on export control um, requirements will probably, again, maybe, maybe hasten some of the preparation or some of the planning because it's like it's it's no longer an abstraction. Right? Yeah. And, and so that's and, why and I it think should. it ultimately backfire will will end up backfiring on the Chinese because it's not that powerful a weapon in terms of pushing back Inflicting on the, the US led yeah. semiconductor controls. But the reaction it will cause will just really push countries to who 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 are worried about this stuff to try even harder to reduce the vulnerability in key areas to China. Yeah.
0: It well, takes it- time
1: and it's, it's, it takes time. It's, it's, um it's not a sort of a linear process. It there's, it gets lumpy. You have lobbyists, you have costs, you have all sorts of things. Every time the Chinese side does something to remind the key stakeholders of these vulnerabilities, it just makes it, I think increases the momentum towards trying to find um, more sustainable solutions to reducing the vulnerabilities on, to reducing the reliance on China for some of these key things.
0: And there should be urgency in a couple key areas, in particular the push to green energy throughout the Western world. Yeah, I
1: mean, it, this stuff is not about chips. It's about, I mean, it, it's about sort of, you know, one of the big points of cooperation between the EU and China is climate change, you know, dealing with with the climate and mm-hmm. sustainable energy. And, and and this is one of the things where China is saying, oh, yeah, we want to work with you, but oh, by the way.
0: right. Right. And, and, and oh, by the way, we're integral to these supply chains. And if, if the entire Western world is going to be dependent on green energy, then that means the entire Western world, right. at least today, is dependent on China in its supply chains. Um, yeah. So it creates a real point of leverage. Um, so
1: Well, and the question is, you know, the Chinese is really, you know, how much leverage do they really have and how permanent is that leverage? And then how much do these kinds of actions force other countries to push back harder to reduce that leverage. And so the question Mm -hmm. really becomes Did the Chinese basically shoot too soon.
0: Yep. We shall see. Uh, But for now, to shift gears to an entirely different sort of story, in the United States on Monday, it was announced that Gal Luft, a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen who serves as the co-director of a Maryland-based think tank, was indicted for allegedly engaging in multiple international criminal schemes One of the charges was that he willfully failed to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, and according to the allegations contained in the indictment, for years, Luft conspired with others in an effort to act within the United States to advance the interests of the People's Republic of China as agents of China-based principles without registering as foreign agents as required under U.S. law. Um, And just to put this in context... Per the New York Post, the indictment said Luft agreed to recruit and educate a former high-ranking U.S. official to make public statements which were in the interest of China. The official was not named in the DOJ indictment, but details about his work correspond to former CIA Director James Woolsey, who briefly worked for former President Donald Trump and his transition team after the 2016 election. And final point of context... Gall Luft was going to be a witness who then allegedly disappeared. And he was the source of some sort of controversy because he claimed to have evidence that the Bidens were influence peddling in China.
1: According to his allegations, he he was taking money from the same company that was paying Hunter Biden and his uncle. It was the CEFC Energy. You know, the, the founder of that company in China has long disappeared into the detention um, but he—he's claiming this Galloway guy is claiming now that he sort of has firsthand knowledge of uh, the president, President Joe Biden's uh, interactions too, right? Mm-hmm. So of course, it's—it's it's really kind of a mind-blowing situation because some of the same people on Capitol Hill who are like you know super China hawks are also like super hunter. They're like hunter, obs- hawks. hunter yep. obsessives. And so they're sort of like their brains are being riven asunder by do we <laughs> do we be tough on China or do we be, you know, go after the president and the hunter family? Because it it's sort of so I think, I mean, honestly, I I had, had only interacted just on Twitter. This guy Gall left was this complete tanky loser um on mm. Twitter, totally obviously in the I, tank for the Communist I was wondering warning. whether you knew him. Um, okay. I mean, really, just just like like and he, you know, he ran. He ran. It was one of these. You know, DC full of these kind of fake think tanks. Um, this one he ran was called the Institute for the Analysis of Global Security, IAGS. Um, and basically, it looks like it was just the front for PRC money, for, and for him to sort of pretend like he was a thinker and a player. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think on the fara stuff, it'll be interesting. It takes a lot for the Department of Justice to bring a fara case. Um, yeah, it doesn't mean they win everyone, but they probably have some. Pretty good evidence to at least indict him over this. the The fact that you know he was working with a former CIA director is just kind of embarrassing, um, and it just again I think shows how you just really don't know sort of or maybe a lot of people don't care where the money's coming from. Um, but mm-hmm. especially when you're dealing with some of these some of these think tanks, especially the minor ones, you just really got to be careful like what who's really funding it. Um, but that's you know they're they're sort of like all over DC. Um,
0: Right. I mean, the reason this piqued my interest is I first learned about FARA during my time as a lawyer, and I was dealing with it more in the context of unregistered foreign agents working on behalf of Russia. And I was pretty floored by how frequently the law is just ignored, uh, both by lobbyists in D.C. and then also like enforcement. It is pretty rare. Um, It's it makes me wonder how pervasive a problem like this is in D.C. Um, like there the when I was working on it, there were a couple of cases where the lobbyist in question wasn't even really hiding the work and still never registered as a foreign agent, never really faced any consequences.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, they're hard cases to bring. They really take. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like from the from the Department of Justice released on this indictment um, and again, and this is until proven guilty. These are just allegations. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's certainly the way they write about it. It sounds like they must have copies of electronic communications. Um, right. And, and so, I mean, we'll see. It's, it's like, but it's just a classic, it's just a mess. And, you know, the other allegations around sort of like trying to broker, um, broker a deal to sell like weapons to Libya. Um, it, it, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> sounds like this is just a really nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and now and he's a busy guy too and now he's on the run and he's an Israeli citizen so maybe he's um, he, he was actually arrested in Cyprus in February and then skipped bail so um, unclear where he ran off to maybe he's in Israel now it's unclear um, mm-hmm. but it's definitely it's, it's just like I mean I think on the Chinese side if you're on the Chinese side you kind of almost have to be laughing because it's just a big DC mess because you've got like a former CIA director appears again. He's not named, but people are speculating because, like, there's a form. We'll put a link to it. There's at least there's a foreign policy article that was published. The co byline line between this guy Gallow oh, and Woolsey. Interesting. Um, so the, the assumption is that's that's who it was. And he at one point Woolsey I think was advising the Trump Trump campaign or the the Trump um, transition. Um, so the speculation is out there. That's at least who this unnamed person is in the in the indictment. And then you've got the craziness, sort of the how do you if you're if you're a GOP and you're a China hawk, how do you sort of split the baby between? Do I go after the China influence, or do I say this guy's a political prisoner? Being he's a he's a, he's, he's a political persecution targeted. because it's a cover up of the you know the Biden crime family as they call it, you know. I mean, it's just like it's a mess, right? <laughs> it's really It's just, is it's a just mess. like it's just this toxic cesspool, and so. Um, I don't know. I just it'll be interesting to see where and you already, you know, again, we'll, we'll see what comes out of it. They'll probably know that there are indictments out there. There'll probably be some follow on reporting, you know, and sort of maybe get some more details about what's going on. But it's it's a um, on the one hand, it's shocking. On the other hand, it's not
0: right. Well, as someone who consumes a lot of China Twitter I, every now and then come across people who are so stridently pro China that I wonder whether they're on the take somehow. Um, and it's funny to see that at least in one case, uh, the answer looks is like yes. It, yeah, It looks like yes. Yeah. Yes. So Allegedly. Yes. I think he's you know? still,
1: and he's still active on Twitter. I think he, like yesterday, I don't want to put him in the show notes. People can go find him themselves, but, um, yesterday i think he was posting um like i think he posted his video again like i'm a political person you know it's a political persecution video
0: it's an interesting risk for him to take as he's now a a fugitive of the u.s government somewhere out there
1: justice will we'll let it have to you know we'll play out and and not logging off yeah we'll see um you've already got like Here's a Fox News clip. You've got Senator Ron Johnson and Maria Bartiromo basically talking about he's a political, he's just a political persecution to cover up the 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 Biden fam, crime family issues. As, as interesting? DC, like, to call I it. would not have guessed. So yeah, would so actually I know. So, yeah, yeah. so so they're going to go to bat for a guy who also appears like he was a Chinese influence agent just because <laughs> they can try and stick it to Biden. So it's just wow. like it's just like a classic DC
0: nutshell. Okay. <laughs> well, right. there you go. So I don't well, know. It's, it'll,
1: it'll be interesting to see how, um, if the Chinese propaganda system decides to sort of make fun of this, and if so, how they do it, because it seems like it's fertile ground.
0: Okay. Well, speaking of undisclosed locations, Gong, do you have any insight into what's going on with Gong? You've mentioned it a couple times. You highlighted it on Twitter, and um, it seems like he has been... Either sick or disappeared for some reason. so he so he's been
1: out of sight for seventeen days now, and there were rumors starting last week. He, he there was one one big meeting. the EU foreign policy chief was supposed to go to Beijing. The meeting got postponed. They didn't say why, but EU folks, I think started thinking it was health reasons. Finally, today is the start of this ASEAN foreign minister's meeting in Indonesia and it's the foreign ministers meeting right so you know you, there've been other meetings where Xin gong didn't show up but you know you could have other people re- show up in his stead um this, this one that gong is the foreign minister and, it's the foreign minister of the and, PRC. and you know the, the the chinese government really doesn't talk about health of um officials mm-hmm. it's just really not something they like to talk about and so But this time today at the foreign ministry press conference, they had to basically say that um, he has physical issues, health issues. And so they're sending his predecessor, who's now more senior, Wang Yi is now going, uh, is now in Indonesia instead for this ASEAN foreign ministers meeting. And so something's up 17 days. They they didn't say what it was. There's been speculation or leaks in some media that it's COVID. 17 days absence for COVID it seems like a really long time. If, if it is just COVID, he must have had a really, really bad case of it. Mm. Um, and which is, again, surprising given his age, given, you know, no doubt that the, the vaccines he would have been able to access and the fact that someone like his level would have access to Paxlovid if they wanted it or, or you know, a, or a similar drug in China. So we don't know. It's just something's up. It's it's uh, and there's no no idea when he'll show up again. Yeah, but it's just well- it's just interesting.
0: Well, and I, I wasn't aware that news hit before we came on to record here today. Um, you flagged it early on, and I've been monitoring it for the last week or two with no updates. So we'll continue to monitor that situation and see if we get any more details. Um, but to keep it moving, let's go to an email. As a reminder, listeners can email us at email at sharpchina.com. .fm. First from Jamie, he says, Andrew and Bill, I enjoy the podcast and newsletter. Thank you so much for putting it together. I have a question about the problems China faces. In different podcasts, China's domestic or foreign issues are at times labeled as a, quote, big problem, disaster or crisis. It's hard to get a sense of where things lie on a difficulty scale or how big of a challenge these issues are in relative terms. Here are China's issues I can think of that have been discussed in the podcast. Economic issues, the economic slump, high youth unemployment, raids on businesses and local government debt. Demographic issues, gender ratio difference, falling birth rates, aging population, and then civil liberty issues, tightening security under Xi, jailing comedians and fining companies due to jokes about the PLA and stifling information flow how do these rank in terms of potential to degrade the quality of life of Joe or Josephine the plumber in China? And how do they rank in order of the greatest risk to China's future? And then on the flip side, what's the CPC or China society doing well and what do they have going for them? It can't all be bad. Do you have thoughts, Bill? It's a pretty broad question there.
1: Yeah, it's a big question. It's not all bad. I mean, I I think that... um, you know, you, there's no question that there are economic challenges. I mean, the, the Chinese government talks about them all day long. Um, there are issues in the real estate market. There are issues with uh, growth. There's issues with employment. Um, you know, the Chinese government is worried about the youth employment rate, um, it, it, unemployment rate just because, um, again, it is a, um, you know, unemployed youth have been the source of social problems in the past in China. Um, mm-hmm. And you know have, have threatened political stability in the past. Not necessarily they will this time, but it's certainly an area where they would be very focused on trying to um, make sure that political stability is not in any it, it, put at it any sort of risk. Um, I think when you look at you know another thing on the list that the commentator didn't mention. I mean, environmental issues are a big problem in China. At the same time, again, the government knows this, and so they're trying to address it. They've addressed. Um, a lot of the pollution issues in some of the bigger cities um there are also significant, significant issues around water um which are harder to deal with, but for example they've spent tens of billions of dollars constructing waterworks to move water from southern China to northern China, which is tends to be more arid interesting um, you know it's it's like the part you know one of the one of the issues around this sort of in you know a lot of it I think comes from to sort of the infamous book in the early 2000s, I think it was 2001, sort of the coming collapse of China, which is so much of sort of these discussions of problems about China are framed at least in a lot of the sort of American or Western discourse is sort of like this binary, like, Oh my God, it's terrible. It's going to collapse or Oh my God, it's like boom times and they're going to take over the world. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. I used to joke, like, not that I'm going to, if I ever wrote a book on China, it would be the coming muddle through, which is like, they're a big country with a lot of problems, a lot of opportunities, a lot of good things and bad things. Um, the government's not clueless. They're actually quite aware of all the challenges and all the problems that people in the sort of Wests and think tanks or media, whatever, like to point out. I pretty much guarantee you that the Chinese government, somewhere in their system, probably understands the issues better than the foreign observers. Um, doesn't mean they know how to address them or they can address them given the political constraints of their system. But a lot of them aren't, Necessarily big surprises, and mm-hmm. so um, you know I think you have to you know one of the ways you sort of can identify or think about what are the big risks um, are sort of what are the Chinese government saying the big risks are what are they trying to address, and so when you look at after the nineteenth Party Congress, I think it was after the nineteenth Party Congress in two thousand seventeen and, and I, again, I'm old now. My memory will be fading. But Xi Jinping started talking about these three tough battles. So one was around sort of environmental protection and pollution. One was around financial risks. One was around poverty alleviation. Um, the first two really are significant risks to the country, to the system, and to society. Um, and they've made progress, a lot of progress on the environment, some progress on the financial risks, but not as much as they'd like. And I think that's why we're, we're seeing sort of the, the, the cleanup. The, but the cleanup is never ending because the debt problem is just so massive. But again, it's also not like everywhere is a debt problem. It's certain regions, certain areas are worse. Certain sectors are worse than others. Um, and on poverty alleviation, I mean, the reality is is that you know they declared victory in the war on poverty. Um, it was you know one of Xi's signature policies. It was it, you know the the a set of policies has helped a lot of people be able to lift themselves out of poverty over the last few years. Um, you know, there's still, poverty still an issue in China. There were some games being played with poverty alleviation in some regions. You know, of course, it was a top level political priority. And so local officials throughout the system had to deliver results. And sometimes they delivered results that were fake. A lot of times they delivered real results. I mean, it's, it's one of these interesting, right, as you talk about and this is a little bit off the question of this topic, but it's, it's something that has driven me nuts for a while. Um, you know, China has built spent a lot of money building out uh, a pretty impressive infrastructure system, both in terms of roads and then, of course, high-speed rail. And yep. in, in some parts of sort of Western pundit world and economist world, there's this argument that, like the high-speed rail, China's too poor to have such nice infrastructure, that it's a wasteful investment. And yet, in fact... Um, the benefits from those kinds of systems are far beyond financial. And I'll, I'll remember, I'll send you, we'll put a link into, there's a guy who, who's got a Substack, and he's been writing a series on sort of local government debt. And one of his mm-hmm. articles talks about high speed rail. And I totally agree with it, which is that like, like the benefits from this sort of the social
0: benefits, just from, like a civic pride, and
1: well, no, but like all of a sudden, you know, one of the things you you learned, like first year Chinese, was like true or not. This is what I was taught, right? It was like they have so many dialects because you know there were so many parts of the country they were isolated from one another because mobility. there were no roads and you know there was no access, right? Well, now there is access. It, it's it's an, you know you have to have infrastructure to unify a country, to unify markets, um, you know, to bring prosperity to people, right? It makes a lot of sense. It's sort of like we kind of did it, like, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we have this great interstate highway system. We don't have high-speed rail. Anyway, I'm sort of on a bit of a rant, but my point is that China's a big, complicated country where you can find whatever you want to find. If you want to find something that says, oh my God, the place is going to collapse, you can find that. If you want to find like, oh my God, this place is amazing. It's going to take over the world. You can find that too.
0: Interesting. Well, that's an excellent answer to the question. I it, I put you in a tough position having to address like eight different issues that Jamie raised. Um, the question about the quality of life of Joe the plumber in China is interesting to me, and it, to circle back to yeah, what I said and it's, earlier. And it's
1: hard. You know what? It's it's really hard to answer because it depends. It depends on how old is Joe the plumber, right? Mm-hmm. If Joe the plumber is twenty
0: three. College graduate. Right. Can't if find a well, job. If, Joe,
1: if Joe the Plumber is young and has only grown up in growth and rising expectations and rising prosperity, Joe the Plumber may be not maybe unhappy. If Joe the Plumber is somebody who grew up in poverty, is older, who grew up when basically everybody in China was poor, like in the 70s and 80s, and has seen what how the country has developed and how much more prosperous it is and how much, you know, how in so many ways, how much more advanced the country is then you know, maybe Joe the plumber has a different view and he's still pretty happy. It, it really hmm. depends. And, and it's impossible to give you a correct answer to that question.
0: Okay. Well, keep the questions coming because I pulled out a great answer from Bill. Another email we got, Bill and Andrew, I lived in Shanghai in the early 2010s and I'm now in New York, but I still get these travel alerts from the State Department. So do I. And, and he's forwarding the State Department They upgraded their travel alert and said to reconsider travel to mainland China. The summary explaining why the People's Republic of China arbitrarily enforces local laws, including issuing exit bans on U.S. citizens and citizens of other countries without fair and transparent process under the law. The Department of State has determined the risk of wrongful detention of U.S. nationals by the PRC government exists in the PRC. U.S. citizens traveling or residing in the PRC may be detained without access to U.S. consular services or information about their alleged crime. U.S. citizens in the PRC may be subjected to interrogations and detention without fair and transparent treatment under the law. And so Rich asks, um, I'd be interested to hear Bill's take on these alerts. How seriously should we take them? does the State Department over or under-index on caution?
1: Uh, no, I think these statements should be taken quite seriously. I think that the um, uh, perhaps for too long, the State Department was under-indexing under on caution around things like exit bans. Um, mm-hmm. I, those are real. Um, there are a number of Americans who can't leave and have no recourse. Um, and so I think it it is a... Um, It is not a place where you want to get in trouble. And, you know, again, sure, we'll get some what about the U.S. criminal justice system, and that's fine. But if you, as an American, if you get in trouble in China, um, you will very quickly learn that all the things you think you can do when you're in the U.S. or the rights you have, they don't exist. And so um, I, I think it is not unreasonable for the government to be very clear and outlining what the risks are the chinese side of course is pissed um they yesterday's foreign ministry press conference they basically put out a rejoinder to the latest upgrade where they talk about the um if i can can i read a quote from the foreign yes. ministry spokesperson moni um the in resp- featured in every episode it was, a, it it was got a, a lot of fun it tapes. Yes, it was it was in response to a question by cctv about this latest State Department advisory. And part of her response was, speaking of entry and exit review and wrongful detentions, in recent years, the U.S. has put up hurdles and even harassed and interrogated, under various excuses, Chinese nationals entering the U.S., From time to time, Chinese students bound for the U.S. have been refused entry and sent back. Recently, the U.S. has smeared China's efforts to repatriate corrupt fugitives and recover criminals' illegal proceeds and even prosecuted and detained Chinese nationals and people of Chinese descent in the U.S. The U.S. has scapegoated China on fentanyl-related issues, resorting to sting operations and extraterritorial abduction against Chinese nationals and prosecution against Chinese entities and individuals. And then basically, it was spun into like a warning, a reminder for Chinese citizens traveling the u s that they 're at risk
0: mm.
1: um and then and then the Chinese government also regularly has bits i mean they should a lot of countries should about the risks of crime and gun violence et cetera
0: right That's i mean i would i
1: would I would put a warning to other people. Residents of other
0: traveling sta- here.
1: states in the U.S. about traveling to D.C. Given what's going on in D.C. lately,
0: it's been pretty bad this year. There's no question about that. Um, I, I wonder whether some of the high level party officials have to memorize various uh, misdeeds on the American side because they, they often think, launch I think they have into a that long
1: litany <laughs> laminated card that gets updated. On I was going to say <laughs> it's uh, pretty impressive. Pull it impressive. out. Here we go. Yes,
0: it's, it's, uh... so on our side. Do you know anything mechanically about how or why these travel alerts are issued or in this case upgraded
1: uh great question i don't I don't know what the exact trigger is for them to be a change sometimes you'll see I think they're issued on a regular schedule and then occasionally you'll see like and I think it, this might have even been this case where they're issued. And then people see it and say, oh, the US has changed the travel alert, but actually they're just reissuing the same thing. Like it hasn't been a change, but they have to put them out on a like a regular basis. Um, mm-hmm. How internally the State Department they make these decisions, I, I don't know. Maybe if we okay. have anyone in the State Department who wants to let us know, listener, feel free to comment, send me an email, let us know. That'd be great.
0: Yeah, I, I'm curious. Um, and we got a question a while back asking for the podcast's official position on travel to China. And um I believe the official position is that we have no official position. I've got multiple
1: correct? I got multiple friends in Beijing right now. The official position is you all if you all are thinking about going to China, you're all adults, you got to make your own decision. Um and yeah. I think it's it's a in general, I think it's probably fine, but it really depends on each individual specific case. So I would never be in a position to or 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 dare to think I could advise people whether or not they should go.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and if I were asked for a friend, I would say the same thing. But I would also include a lot of what was in the State Department alert, which is that the law's pretty ambiguous lately. Enforcement can be a little capricious. And if you're detained, there's no guarantee that you're going to have. Uh, I, well, getting out would be more complicated in China than it, it would be in lots of countries that have a better relationship with the United States. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Make of that what you will, and evaluate the risks. Uh, most people going to China aren't doing it to commit crimes, so they would probably be right. fine. And
1: so, so far, everyone I've known who's gone back since sort of travel restrictions ended has been able to leave and return to the U.S. Yes, so far. and
0: and I have a friend who went over there as part of an envoy with a tech company, and he had a terrific time. He was in Shenzhen, and um, he said it was totally low like drama
1: normal as or yeah exactly is. Yeah.
0: yeah very normal um and all of the hysteria was overblown so that was his take right and, uh, and i
1: think that and the the thing is is hysteria is probably the wrong word but the concerns are overblown until they're not and, and mm-hmm. the problem the problem and this is what those various raids at the beginning of the year created even if they were you know the Chinese. Government keeps saying they're very specific, very targeted. The problem is the capriciousness and the lack of transparency, right? And this is the way the system works. So it's all overblown until
0: you're until you your get numbers the exit banned, and then yeah. it's
1: like, what the p- is going on?
0: Right, and what and, and recourse you, do you have?
1: You cannot guarantee that your number won't get called.
0: Hmm. Well, um, to close on a lighter note, uh, i not sure how light it is exactly. Uh, the New York Times writes, of all the things that could inflame tensions in a region that could someday be a theater of war between superpowers, the movie Barbie was not an obvious catalyst. Yet here we are. Authorities in Vietnam this week banned the upcoming Greta Gerwig film over a map in Barbie that they said shows a Chinese map of territory in the South China Sea. It was China like a sea. chicken
1: scraw. I don't, I don't see it, but...
0: Yes, well, I, I'm, we're going to get to that. The head of the Vietnam Cinema <laughs> Department, an agency in the one-party state, said the film would not be released domestically because of a scene that includes the so-called Nine Dash Line, a map that appears on official Chinese documents and encircles most of the South China Sea. So, um, I have a take on this, but you have seen the map in question, right?
1: Well, I've seen screenshots of the map. I've yet, I'm dying to see the movie, I've yet to see it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I but, can't, can't, I imagine, <laughs> but um, I mean, from what it looks like, it looks like there's I don't know, I don't see it, but separately, there was a Chinese TV show that just got banned in Vietnam because it did have the real map and and, and the, the Vietnamese, with the nine dash line, yeah, yeah, and the Vietnamese if it's a real map. Basically like it, it will get blocked it won't get shown in Vietnam, but then if it's a map that the Vietnamese like it won't get shown in China. Interesting. Yes. Well And so I mean it makes sense if you're a Chinese production, of course it makes sense that you would have the Chinese map. If you're a Hollywood production, uh one, you would think that maybe there would be a way to digitally switch the maps, like you know, right. like um <laughs> right? Custom but- maps for each
0: market, sure.
1: But if you have to choose, it's obvious you're going to choose China because the market there is much bigger than the Vietnam market.
0: Well, I'll I'll provide some context. Uh, Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning said, quote, China's position on the South China Sea issue is clear and consistent. Relevant countries should not link the South China Sea issue with normal cultural exchange. And then excuse uh, me if I
1: choke a little bit considering. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the uh, yeah no kidding the irony there um warner brothers they say the map in barbie land is a childlike crayon drawing the doodles depict barbie's make-believe journey from barbie land to the real world it was not intended to make any type of statement and then representative mike gallagher who chairs the select committee on the china communist party uh Quote, while it may just be a Barbie map in a Barbie world, the fact that a cartoonish crayon scribbled map seems to go out of its way to depict the PRC's unlawful territorial claims illustrates the pressure that Hollywood is under to please CCP censors. So- he's right.
1: He's, I mean, again, I don't know about this particular map, but he's 100 percent correct on the pressure to make sure that the Chinese side stays happy.
0: Yes. And that's what I find interesting about this controversy. I mean, on one hand, it is the stupidest story in the world. Uh, Particularly once you see the map, Uh, we'll include a link in the show notes. Not only is the map a children's drawing, but it also has eight dashes, not nine dashes. And yes, I counted on Tuesday morning. So it should be banned
1: everywhere. So so Uh, it actually offends both Vietnam and China. Exactly.
0: (laughs) You're not respecting the PRC's uh, vision of the South China Sea. But it's funny because my take is that I don't know whether the line was inserted to appease the censors. My guess is that it was a coincidence. Um,
1: I would not assume that at all. I I think that these these big film studios, they now are extremely sensitive to any content that could upset China.
0: Right. Well, and, and that's a possibility. Yeah, I shouldn't discount it out of hand. But I think either way, you've got Everyone now trying to appease domestic audiences, including the Vietnamese cinema department um, and also various politicians in the U.S. and, And it can all look pretty ridiculous and overblown. But at the core of the issue, there are the baseline truths, which is that the PRC is trying to expand its claims to territory in the South China Sea. And they've been ignoring international law in the process of that. And then whether it did or didn't happen in the case of the Barbie movie, Hollywood has been in lockstep with Chinese censors for like 25 years now. And so the kernel of truth at the core of this story should actually be concerning to people and is more relevant than a international Barbie controversy um, would suggest.
1: Um, No, I 100 percent. I think that... Um... You know, and the other thing too, right? If you're a Hollywood film studio, and if you have content that is objectionable to the Chinese government, you can lose access to the Chinese film market. If you have content that basically appeases the PRC censors and that will piss off politicians in the U.S., it's not going to co- really impact your ability to make money in the U.S. market. So, right. so it's an easy, relatively easy decision. You'll take the flack from. Capitol Hill, you got a bunch of lobbyists, no one cares after 10 minutes anyway, um, versus like, we can't get a release date in China. And therefore we lose whatever,
0: you know, X amount of, and I mean, I, you know,
1: I have a friend, listener, reader, who's longtime Hollywood guy. I saw him a few weeks ago in DC. Um, And, you know, one thing that's interesting, though, is that Views are starting, I think, to shift in Hollywood because the market is harder for U.S. films now than it used to be, both in terms okay, of- less lucrative? Less lucrative, more competition. Um, it's still big enough that they have to care. Um, but I really would not underestimate just how craven some of these studios are when it comes to making sure that they are keeping Chinese censors happy. It's quite remarkable. I mean, it's been going for a long time. I remember before I launched this, I remember joking probably a decade ago. You know how like you, know, you watch a movie on a plane, right? And in, in the old days mm-hmm. before you had a little screen, it'd be like, you know, there'd be like a notice this content has been modified, you know, formatted to fit the screen. I used to joke that like movies should have like the, warning like this
0: content has been modified to to appease
1: the (laughs) Beijing censors, right?
0: By some functionary in the the middle of the CPC. That's why I discounted the idea that this was actually a, a conscious choice made on the part of the Barbie filmmakers. I just can't imagine any adult in China reviewing the script or reviewing the movie and seeing this stupid map and saying there needs to be eight dashes inserted there to reflect our <laughs> territorial claims but maybe i shouldn't discount that possibility you i, I know? mean
1: i i would just say that i wouldn't discount it i don't know for certain but i again i think people would be really surprised by some of the and i think people they've learned their lesson because if you make a mistake the costs are too high so they're really careful
0: yeah well and there is no question that the prc wields that as a weapon and has for several decades in hollywood um but that's <sighs> interesting that the attitudes are changing to some degree
1: um yeah and we'll see and then all it takes is a nice you know a nice big blockbuster and then all of a sudden it comes back i mean avatar made a lot of money avatar 2 but apparently it was it was still it was less than was expected
0: mm. um well we shall see yes a win for the vietnam cinema department because they raised awareness on an international no, scale but they
1: don't get barbie i mean you know well think of, think i know of the how poor. will they survive That's yeah,
0: true I mean, I I just know that on opening night you'll be there to see the Barbie movie no, for us. No, you'll no, no. Provide I'll some we, context. I'll, I'll read it on Apple
1: TV, but I'll watch it at some point. Because I mean, <laughs>
0: okay. Tashi likes it. I got to let him
1: watch it. They don't.
0: It's true. A lot of a lot of great coloring in there. <laughs> um, well, on that note, Bill, we will come back next week and keep it rolling. But it's great to be back. And yes, uh, it is per usual. Please give Tashi my best. You too, and say hi to Ollie.
1: Thank you.